When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. It is our 150th show, which seems crazy. Yes. It is crazy. It's been over three years since we started doing this thing. It's mm-hmm. our third Halloween with the podcast. Mm-hmm. And, well, Halloween season. You know, it's coming up. Oh, it's it's done been Halloween season. You're you're a month, two months into buying um, every king-size candy bar you can see at the grocery store. I'm trying. Because you're uh, hell-bent on being the best house on the block for, for trick-or-treaters. Absolutely. It's my passion. Uh, Carrie, we just wrapped up three spooky weeks of talking about vampires, mm-hmm. both historical and fictional. Um, so what is our spooky topic du jour? Uh, what are we scaring ourselves with for this 150th, I can't believe it, episode of the podcast? Well, in one of our very first episodes of the show, I tackled a famous Halloween urban legend and the true story behind it, that of the real Candyman. Oh, yes. And the, the real story behind the myth of poisoned Halloween candy, which I think was our ninth episode ever. Yep, and uh, definitely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it. But just as a reminder, no one's ever poisoned a stranger's Halloween candy. It's mm-hmm. never happened. Yeah. So for our 150th, I thought we'd return to our roots, so to speak, this classic topic with uh, another Halloween urban legend and its real life or not so real life origins. But first... I have a request for our listeners. Okay, we're doing some homework. (laughs) I hope they don't see it as that, but Sean and I would love to compile some of your favorite moments from the last year of Ain't It Scary in honor of our three-year anniversary of the show. Uh, So whether you'd like to reach out to us on any of our assorted social medias, probably at Ain't It Scary, wherever you're looking, uh, you can send an email to ain'titscary at gmail.com. You can leave a voicemail on our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. Or for our Patreon folks, you can drop a comment there or on Discord. But let us know your favorite clips from the last 50 or so episodes of the pod that would begin with our Jack the Ripper series through to today. We might feature your selection on an upcoming kind of compilation episode, And uh, we might even feature any notes or uh, voicemail you'd like to share with us on why you enjoyed that segment so much, whether you liked the storytelling or laughed with us at some silly impressions or story details, or simply feel that the clip in question represents the show particularly well. And of course, we want to thank all of you listeners too for sticking with us this last three years 
can't believe it's been three years, (laughs) and making this whole endeavor worthwhile. It's been amazing connecting with so many of you, either online or uh, even more recently in person, and we hope to keep this spooky train moving for many, many more episodes to come. Yeah, our lives have changed a whole lot since we started doing this three years ago, and um, this has been a beautiful constant, so um, thank you all. Absolutely. And with that sentimentality and request out of the way, we'll begin today's episode by recapping a famous urban legend that has connections to both Halloween and some of our recent discussions on the show, the legend of Bloody Mary. Oh. Now, I'm sure you've heard this story, Sean. It's a popular slumber party story. You chant Bloody Mary 13 or maybe three or maybe some other number times uh, in front of a candlelit or could be completely darkened mirror. And doing so will summon the vengeful spirit of Bloody Mary. It's exactly like playing with a Ouija board. It's like, you know, something... Oh, oh, it's scary to do this because I I heard you get killed if you do it. Let's do it. This legendary ritual has been around for decades with Barbara Mickelson of Snopes writing that it was a popular sleepover activity even back in the early 70s when she was a kid. Uh, In one of the first horror stories I wrote as a child, so around seventh grade or so, I even included the ritual and a character called Bloody Mary because of my fascination with this macabre urban legend. I don't really know exactly where I heard it first. It's one of those little kid kind of just innate instinctual things that you just know, uh, along with other urban legends. But uh, I remember the general idea. You go into the bathroom, turn off the lights, and call for Bloody Mary in the mirror and wait for a freaky ghost to pop out at you. She never does. No. And I never had the guts to attempt it on my own as a youngster. I'm shocked by that, Carrie. Mm -hmm. But obviously anyone doing so would swiftly find that, of course, nothing happened. So why does this urban legend persist? Why do kids keep on doing this little ritual? Well, it is just like the Ouija board thing, right? It's like you're trying to prove that you're brave. You're trying to prove that you um, don't believe in it, but you kind of do believe in it. So it's, it's you know, uh, you get to feel like a grown-up when you're on the other side of it and you're you're done and look how brave you were. Exactly. And one major sort of idea behind why people are still doing this when they're growing up is that of young women, especially, having some sort of inherent interest in all things witchy, even if they don't necessarily know that's what they're interested in. Um, Like I know myself, as well as many of my friends, we loved making little potions out of sticks and leaves and random stuff in the backyard. Uh, We pretended to engage in all kinds of magic as children. And we didn't understand that these were sort of manifestations of our interest in ritual, but just was like, oh, we love being little witches. Uh, Light as a feather, stiff as a board is another popular slumber party activity that is um, ritualistic and kind of magical. Yeah. And just like with that or with busting out the Ouija board at sleepovers, it's usually young women that are doing these things. Um, young women are the ones playing mash to try and divine their future spouses and whether they'll be living in a mansion, apartment, shack, or house. Uh, I would play mashy. Uh, we would have like these really long mash 
games as a kid because um, we would be like on buses to field trips. Be looking like the um, the like logic puzzles they yes. give you in math class. <laughs> yes, um, and we would we would go to town on those. I loved playing match mash, but. Um, we know from our Salem Witch Trials episodes that even back when any kind of paganism or witchery was extremely taboo, young women were drawn to rituals and magic in a way to maybe at least inject some interest into their very often boring and terribly mundane lives. While the men of the house were out working and attending school, often the women and girls would be stuck at home with nothing much to do to pass the time, then talk and tell stories. Well, yeah, but like by the 1990s, when you and I were both growing up, I, I don't think that my life was any less oh, crushingly no. mundane than yours. No, but this is sort of where the idea of ritual becomes really part of the young woman's experience. Um you know, you're, you're kind of around the hearth, you're churning butter or spinning wool, things like that. And it was around these hearths that young women of these earlier eras would start to experiment with rituals, trying to realize that ever-present desire of figuring out who they'd marry and what their life would be like in the future. And again, we're still doing that. We have our little fortune tellers. You have the little four uh, uh, diamonds on your fingers. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we have mash. St kids are still doing mash. I, I saw some kids. Um, was it like your your cousin's kids? Or some kids that we saw recently were playing mash. And it really brought me back. Isn't kid lore amazing? Like yes. kid culture? They Bubble gum in a dish. Like my cousin Jen probably didn't teach her kids mash. Right. Um, but they picked it up from other kids. Somehow. Who had picked it up from slightly older kids. Uh, it's like Jingle Bell's Batman smells. Yes. Yeah, and we kid lore is really fascinating, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. Um, now, especially in the post-pagan but pre-modern era, there wasn't much else for girls to think about or look forward to than who they were going to marry, because that was their life. It was That was the one sort of turning point in their life is, who am I going to marry? And that's going to sort of determine the rest of it. We discussed in our History of Halloween episode, too, that there's originally a romantic link to Halloween uh, for young people back in the day that had nothing to do with, you know, wearing scantily clad costumes and consuming way too much hard cider. I'm sure they were still doing that as well in their versions. Sexy nurse. <laughs> sexy garbage man. <laughs> so Halloween was always intertwined at this point with ritual and with romance and, and trying to figure out the future. Uh, in Ireland, even after the rise of Christianity, young girls would gather together at midnight on Halloween to perform divinations with apples, fire, and yarn, most of the time believing that they would be able to find out who they would marry from these practices. These divinations would be performed in front of mirrors. Uh, this was an act known as catoptromancy. Uh, <laughs> I think I got that. I, th I think my sixth level D&D &D wizard <laughs> just learned catoptromancy. Possibly. It's divination using a mirror, which is also a longstanding pagan tradition. Uh, and some people who practice witchcraft do it to this day. 
It was likely due to the fact that Halloween was seen as the time when the veil between the physical world and spirit world was thinnest. So maybe girls at, at this time thought that they'd get the best answers from the spirits during All Hallows' Eve. And they were always asking, who am I going to marry? What's my future going to be like? <laughs> and then in Victorian times, um, no thanks in no small part to a lot of Irish immigrants moving to America, mirror divinations became all the rage again, with the general ritual being that the young woman would sit in front of a mirror on Halloween, cut an apple into nine slices, and hold each piece on the tip of a knife before eating it. Oh, it's a delicious divination. Yes. Upon finishing, the face of her husband was said to appear in the mirror over her shoulder, or sometimes right in front of her. Now, this is incredibly popular Halloween imagery for this era. I am a nerd. I happen to collect antique Halloween postcards. And several of the ones that I own, along with many others that I've seen, have graphics featuring young women doing divinations in front of mirrors on Halloween, sometimes seeing the face of a handsome man looking back at them. It's like... Super early Halloween imagery with the, you know, how Coca-Cola became the Santa Claus imagery because they sort of figured out what that looked like. This was some of the early Halloween imagery before we got to like the more common jack-o'-lanterns and witches and all that today. Most of this kind of imagery dates from the late 1800s and early 1900s, so this was really a popular concept when Halloween was starting to take root in America, and the traditions of the holiday as we know it were still being established. This doesn't have anything to do with bobbing for apples, right? That's just because apples are kind of at hand at, at autumn time. There's a lot of apple traditions. There's a lot of apple traditions, yeah. And we talked about why that might be. That's obviously due to the harvest. And there was some Roman pagan traditions at the same era that was really about apples and orchards and all that. So, the big time for apples. <laughs> now... No one would continue doing these divinations, even nowadays, if we never actually saw anything in the mirrors, right? Some kid was always saying, oh, I saw a monster in the mirror or whatever. So how can we explain the supposed visions these girls would experience? Because some girls would say, I saw my husband, I saw, uh, you know, William in the mirror, and I'm going to marry him. I'm not convinced that we need anything to explain that. I think some people like lying and sometimes <laughs> it's for no reason. And sometimes it's because you look a little smarter than the other girls because you did it right. Well, if that's true, that's always going to be true. But some people do see things. And one possibility is a scientific one. Simply the act of staring into a mirror in a dimly lit room for a prolonged period of time can cause you to hallucinate. It's also like laying in the dark and staring into your closet and seeing your clothes move and stuff. You just start imagining shadows and weird things in your head because your head is, your brain is just trying to make sense of what you're seeing, even if it's not super clear. Hmm. Facial features may appear to melt, distort, disappear, and rotate. And uh, other hallucinatory elements such as animal or even other strange faces may appear if you stare into a mirror too long. So is this, I mean, your brain just kind of loses the thread. 
Kind of, yeah. In the dark and fills in some stuff. Yeah. Giovanni Caputo of the University of Urbino has written of this phenomenon, which he calls the strange face illusion. Uh, And it might be a possible consequence of a dissociative identity effect, which causes the brain's facial recognition system to misfire in a way that we can't really explain. But again, I think it's just kind of trying to make sense of what it can't see with the little that it can. Or whatever you summoned is looking back at you. Well, true, yes. Other more scientific possibilities for if you're actually seeing images in a mirror during divination rituals include optical illusions, uh, apophenia, which is the tendency to perceive meaningful connections between unrelated things, or even self-hypnosis. Um, you know, you just start start to kind of work yourself up so intensely that you might end up seeing something where there is nothing. Or unscientifically, maybe there's a monster. I don't know. (laughs) But yes, so we know that little girls like casting little spells and spooking themselves out at sleepovers and figuring out who they're going to marry and looking into mirrors and all that. So, okay. But how do you get from who's my husband going to be to who is this demon and why is it murdering me? Well, exactly. Bloody Mary... I mean, from all accounts, she's not the face you want looking back at you from a mirror if you're performing some sort of who is my future spouse ritual. Uh, In pretty much all forms of the legend, she's horrific, she's scary, covered in blood. Why would young girls want to see that or try to see that? It might not be a question of wanting to see. So uh, a historical version of this kind of divination ritual recounted in the book Lucifer Ascending, the Occult in Folklore and Popular Culture, guides young women through a particular process. Walk up a flight of stairs backward, holding a candle and a hand mirror in a darkened house. Gaze into the mirror and perhaps you'll catch a view of your future husband's face or you might see a skull or the face of the Grim Reaper instead. Ooh. Well, wait, but I, what if I just want to see, can I, how do I guarantee the handsome guy? Well, the problem is, Sean, if you saw the skull or maybe the Grim Reaper, that meant you'd be dead before you had the chance to marry. Uh, maybe helped along by attempting to walk upstairs backwards in the dark while looking <laughs> at a mirror and not at where you're going. Yeah, you see a skull and then you see the bottom of the stairs immediately rushing up at you. <laughs> so even in, the, in this early forum of what is a marriage divination ritual, there is a scary option. Um, maybe that just transformed into becoming a separate scary ritual altogether. Bloody Mary as a name and a character also has legendary attachments to a whole host of dark and evil ladies. One is, of course, the original Bloody Mary, Mary I of England. So we're bringing in Henry VIII. He's back. Uh, That's her father. And uh, her mother was his first discarded wife, Catherine of Aragon. Very friend of the pod, Henry VIII. No, no. Queen Mary was Henry's first child, and she became queen when his much longed for son died young. And she got her nickname of Bloody Mary by having around 300 religious Protestant dissenters burned at the stake during her reign in the name of reversing the English Reformation, which was uh, incidentally instigated by her father, old Henry Turkey Legs, <laughs> or Gouty Legs, I guess. They were pretty gouty. 
Now, as I promised earlier, Bloody Mary might also be related to another legendary lady we just discussed. Elizabeth Bathory, yeah. She wasn't even a Mary, though. Trust me, I know. But um, she's always associated with, well, who could this legend be about? Now, we know she allegedly tortured and killed hundreds of girls and women to bathe in their blood. So it's more like a Bloody Lizzie situation. (laughs) But maybe the mirror connection is her obsession with her own looks. I don't know. But she's noted among reasons for the name and the ritual nonetheless. Yeah, I don't know if I buy that. I think that's people looking for connections. Yeah, I think so. Um, Another name we'll hear more of in a bit attached to the legend is Mary Worth who has been identified uh, as in some versions of the legend as either a woman who killed slaves escaping the American South via the Underground Railroad, or a woman who was burned at the stake during the witch trials in the early modern period. Keep in mind, no one was burned at the stake in America. Right. And was this, so was there a real Mary Worth who was like hunting down escaped slaves? Well, I I did some digging to try and figure that out. According to an article about the specific Mary Worth legends uh, from the Lake County Journal in 2013, quote, she's bloody Mary Worth and her origin is Wadsworth, according to local lore. Bob Jensen, paranormal investigator and leader of Lake County's Ghostland Society, said that Dilly's Road used to be called Old Wagon Road. Just north of St. Patrick's Cemetery lived a woman named Mary Worth in the 1860s. Back then, many homes on Gurney, like the Mother Rudd House, were part of the Underground Railroad. So these are all real places. Mm-hmm. Mary was part of the reverse Underground Railroad. She'd bring in slaves under false pretenses to send them back down south and make some money. There were rumors among the townspeople that Mary also practiced the dark arts, torturing and killing slaves for her rituals. For a time, they turned a blind eye to her evil doings, but there came a time that they became fed up. They lynched her on her own property, Jensen said. According to Chicago Haunts, Ghost Lore of the Windy City by Ursula Bielski, in the 1960s, a Lake County resident in her 90s claimed that she watched Mary Worth burn at the stake. So maybe they lynched her by burning her. I'm sure people have been burned to death in America. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Jensen added, from there, the story goes in two directions. The first was that Mary's body was buried on her property. The second was that she was buried in the cemetery. But she's just another uh, name that's associated with the legend. But some versions have girls calling for Mary Worth in the mirror, specifically. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. But, but I it wonder if seems con- to be more regional. I was going to say, I wonder if the connection was made later. Yes. And especially if she was called Bloody Mary Worth. And then when this Bloody Mary game comes in there, of, of course, they'll, they'll become associated. Yeah, Bloody Mary is like the standard, like, you know, the the original evolution of the Pokemon, if you will. Uh, But there are different versions with like different last names. They're always Mary, but sometimes there are other ones. Sure. So a Jolteon, a Flareon, (laughs) a Marion. Yes. Folklorist Dr. Janet Langlois wrote a pretty definitive investigation into the origins of Bloody Mary, and she recounted her work in Confessions of a Legend Hunter in the USA. 
This is how she recalled being introduced to the legend. Quote, My first adventures as a legend hunter, which, bitchin' name, uh, began in 1972 when I was a graduate student at the Folklore Institute, Indiana University. Um, So she goes on to say that she drove to attend a psychic fair in Indianapolis, and um, she did strike up a conversation at that point with a young African-American woman named Gia, who was 12 years old, attending the fair. And Gia told Janet that, quote, she and a number of her friends at her elementary school in Indianapolis regularly called a spirit back in a mirror in the girls' bathroom during recess and lunch breaks. And that the spirit they called back was that of a young woman named Mary Wales, Wales like the animal, uh, who had been killed while hitchhiking on a major street near their school. Langlois, Langlois, I think it's Langlois, it's L-A-N-G-L-O-I-S, so I'm going to say Langlois said that at this point she recognized a version of the vanishing hitchhiker legend when she heard it and decided to investigate further. Quote, I focused instead on examining the relationship between the legendary origin stories students told about Mary Wales and their own personal experience narratives of calling her. I built a case that as the hitchhiker killed by a truck moved from a passive to an active, albeit malevolent position when called in the mirror, so did these students move from a more passive position to a more active one in the very act of calling her. Clearly, I was deeply influenced by structural models for evaluating myth and ritual, dominant at that time. Clearly. (laughs) Sure. Rich in the possibilities of validating narrative study on the abstract level. So, what does that mean? (laughs) Um, It's pretty much her perspective on this location-based version of the Bloody Mary ritual. That by calling upon Mary Wales, these young women were giving themselves some sort of agency, um, even though they were seeking a frightening result. They at least had control over the act of seeking out that result. Uh, do you think it has anything, do you think it has any resonance, consciously or unconsciously, that the figure they're trying to summon was a powerless victim who was a woman? I think very much so. Um, yeah. And to me, this goes way back to the girls sitting around the hearth in Salem, scratching symbols in the ash, trying to divine who they would marry. Uh, they're sort of participating in this taboo ritual, but by participating, they're at least doing something. Um, even if it is for, in this case, a frightening result. In this even imaginary way, these girls were accessing some sort of control over their situation um, by scaring themselves a lot. Whether it's at recess or at lunchtime, they're going into the bathroom and freaking themselves out. And I like that the girl said they do often do this. So so they do believe that they're actually calling a spirit, too. Yes. It's not like, you know, I summoned Bloody Mary in a bathroom once and then nothing happened and... Right, wasn't a fun game anymore. No, it's like an activity, like an oftentimes activity for them. (laughs) Langlois also noted fellow folklorist Alan Dundee's opinion that the girls enacted this Bloody Mary ritual as a way to deal with their fear of menstruation, which is definitely an interesting take. 
Um, but we also have to keep in mind it's a period-focused one coming from an older man who may not have understood the perspective of a young woman. He's like, they said blood. Uh, <laughs> don't you ladies have blood down there? Langloy herself says, quote, for the record, I don't agree with his interpretation, nor did he with mine. In her opinion, young women transformed her themselves ritually through actualizing narrative of another young woman, not so different from themselves, although spectral, in cultural settings that favored the active over the passive, a proto-feminist position that I developed fully in later research. So yeah, their um, experience, the young women are undertaking this ritual to call forth this other young woman. And in a way, they're relating their own experiences to this, um, you know, uh, warning of a story. Maybe you already answered this, and if so, I'm sorry, but was there actually a murder? Or is the is the whole murder story uh, just a version of the, like she was saying, phantom hitchhiker urban legend? I think that's kind of how she came down on it, was that she didn't find any note of this Mary Wales uh, or her death, but that was how the story worked itself out, at least in this school. So that, what's interesting to me is that somehow by the time it reached these girls, the those two recognizable urban legends seem to have fused into one thing. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little more along with Alan Dundee's more menstrual interpretation uh, after the break. Oh, love a menstrual after the break. Hmm. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Welcome back. Ain't it scary with Sean and Carrie? We are here and we are talking menses. <laughs> Great. Uh, no, Carrie, we're talking about Bloody Mary this week. The origins of, uh, I think, an urban legend that all of our listeners are familiar with mm -hmm. if they weren't before they sure are now oh they're going to be very familiar by the end of this episode uh carrie you have a couple of theories that we're going to tackle in the second half here uh, as to what we're really dealing with here yeah so let's start with the menses i knew it <laughs> in his book bloody mary in the mirror Essays in Psychoanalytic Folkloristics. Folklorist Alan Dundies mixes psychoanalysis with the popular Bloody Mary legend to try and pull a Freudian interpretation out of the ritual. Now, I love using a psychological lens with folklore, and I guess we're kind of amateur folklorists in a way, huh? Um, I mean, we always to try some, to find an answer. To some degree. <laughs> We're not always talking about folklore. No, it's true. That's why it was very amateur. <laughs> now, Dundee's notes that in Mary and Herbert Knapp's 1976 anthology of American children's folklore, the Bloody Mary legend and ritual is cited as relating to Mary Worth, 
So again, we got that name back in here. Quote, a child summons Mary Worth, alias Bloody Mary, alias Mary Jane, uh, by going into the bathroom alone at night, turning out the lights, staring into the mirror, and repeating Mary Worth, Mary Worth, softly but distinctly, 47 times. Well, I think a lot of kids do go into their parents' bathrooms and, and summon Mary Jane. <laughs> then Mary Worth comes at you out of the mirror with a knife in her hand and a ward on her nose. So bringing it back to the witchy origin story there. Dundee's comments, quote, here we have most of the primary elements of this ritual. A child, almost always a girl, goes into a bathroom at night or at school in the dark and repeats the name Mary in some form, which supposedly results in a frightening creature named Mary emerging from out of the bathroom mirror. And he also shares another version of the legend transcribed by folklorist Simon J. Bronner in American Children's Folklore. Quote, he describes the ritual as a girl's tradition common in elementary school, which invokes atmosphere of seance. Whoever the Mary figure is, Bronner indicates that the participants are huddled typically in a bathroom with the lights turned off and that they have to really believe in her or else she won't appear. One of the five texts Bronner reports collected from a male informant from Middletown, Pennsylvania in 1984. Informant. <laughs> is as follows. Bloody Mary was a character who was murdered in the woods behind Pine Road Elementary School. And for those wondering, I looked it up. It's a real school in that area in Pennsylvania. So this is another location-based version of the legend. To call her ghost, girls go in the bathroom and prick their fingers with a pin to draw a drop of blood. Then they press the two droplets of blood together and say, we believe in Bloody Mary ten times with their eyes shut. Then upon opening their eyes, they look into the bathroom mirror and the image of Bloody Mary's face would appear. She is said to have been a young girl with long hair, very pale skin, and blood running down her face from a large cut in her forehead. So we have Bloody Mary being modified here and elsewhere as a locationally based legend and a ritual that has encompassed wide swaths of land and decades, if not centuries of time. So Dundee's muse is that the basic issue in this age old chicken and the egg debate is whether ritual derives from myth or whether myth stems from initial ritual. So what's interesting about this urban legend is that there is a ritual to it. It's like a, an active step that the participant takes further than just telling the story. Right. And obviously the ritual is divorced from what the actual myth is because we have versions where she's a slave hunter yes. and we have versions where she's just like a demon or a witch with a wart on her nose. Or a vanishing hitchhiker type. Yeah. So there's a really, there's a two part question here is where did the idea of Bloody Mary come from? Who is Bloody Mary herself as a figure? And where did this ritual come from? And how did they become combined? Dundee's uh, discusses his main question here. What exactly does the reflection of Bloody Mary mean? Or is it essentially meaningless? And why does the ritual almost invariably take place in a bathroom? So the last question here is interesting. I think that's a silly question, and it's a question from a man who didn't brush elbows with this growing up himself, because that's where you can get it really dark and there's a mirror. Yes. What do you mean? Yes. And um, Langlois herself notes in her text that this might be a misguided 
question to ask because it being a bathroom isn't generally an essential part of the Bloody Mary ritual. He's like, you know, the bathroom famously used primarily for (laughs) menstrual stuff. (laughs) That's how he's looking at it. But it's more of a convenient part of the ritual. Those are usually the spaces that have large mirrors. They aren't commonly trafficked by nosy parents checking out what their kids are doing during sleepovers. Um, And they can easily be darkened for the ritual's purposes. In in, in my house growing up, the bathrooms were like the only rooms that you could really make dark during the day. Right. Uh, You might have a... a, um, Sorry. You might have a mirror in your bedroom that would work just as well. Uh, It doesn't have to have a toilet in it, is the point. Um, He really goes wild with his connection between the ritual and the bathroom locale here. Obviously, it's part of his psychological interpretation of the ritual becoming a way for girls to cope with oncoming puberty. Um, So it's a bit misguided because I think he's sort of taking the evidence and making it fit. I think this cigar is just a cigar. But the rest of his hypothesis is very interesting. Quote, The ages of the young girls who participate in the ritual run from 7 to 12. According to one authority, the average American girl first experiences menarche, which I've only ever heard uh, old men say for menstruation. That's That means period? <laughs> yeah, at age 12 and a half. The Bloody Mary ritual in that context would appear to be an anticipatory ritual, essentially warning girls of what to expect upon t- attaining puberty. I think Munarsh was the name of a uh, foreign exchange student we had in, in my high school. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's a warning. You will become a horrible monster covered in blood and obsessed with mirrors. Kind of right, but also reductive. <laughs> <laughs> Quote, the consistent utilization of a mirror in the Bloody Mary ritual confirms Langlois's, Langlo- Langlois, <laughs> Langlois's intuition that the image is in some sense a self-image. Dundee's elaborated that, quote, the interpretation here would certainly explain why the ritual takes place in a bathroom and why there is such an explicit and repeated emphasis on the sudden appearance of blood. So again, we're skimming over the logic of using the bathroom because it's a convenient place to use. Um, But he's also kind of going in an interesting direction here. He says that the name Mary could be a reference to the Virgin Mary. Virginity is still an issue for young girls, especially when the risk of pregnancy is understood as a non, as a concomitant feature of pubescence. In addition, the vowel in the name Mary, as pronounced in some American dialects of English, is the same vowel as in the verb marry, as in to marry, to get married. Right. The, the, yeah, the, the words are homophones. Right. So part of the culturally defined transition from girlhood to womanhood entails the expectation that one day marriage might occur. So maybe we're making a connection here between this centuries old pagan tradition of mirror divination rituals for getting the spiritual scoop on who you're going to marry to what eventually became Bloody Mary. So maybe we just solved all of it. I don't know. It is It is all interesting. <laughs> hmm. Um. I don't know that I knew that this was a primarily female phenomenon. I think it definitely is. I've n- I never encountered like I was friends with a lot of guy 
pick me, right? I was friends with a lot of guys as a kid. Um, they never were into that sort of stuff. I've never heard it mentioned uh, with like young men talking about it, but it was always like a sleepover activity with girls, uh, including, you know, stuff like Ouija boards and Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Mm-hmm. It's always girls that are involved in these things. In the versions of the legend that also incorporate a vanishing hitchhiker narrative, which uh, there are a few, it's not just the one that we talked about before, Dundee's finds a further link between growing up and getting spooked. Quote, the association of the vanishing hitchhiker legend with the Bloody Mary ritual makes it logical to assume that it might possibly have something to do with the transition from girlhood to womanhood. If we see the legend in metaphorical terms, then we can appreciate it as a symbolic morality narrative, a cautionary tale, which, uh, as an aside, most urban legends are. Right. Don't go necking uh, down the road because a guy with a hook for a hand is going to come get you in the dark. Yeah. A girl who hitchhikes, that is, allows herself to be picked up by a perfect stranger, usually male, runs the risk of losing her virtue. The car to prepubescent girls and boys represents a potential mobile bedroom. Moreover, and this is critical, a girl who allows herself to be picked up in this way can never really go home again. In more explicit terms, a girl who has once lost her chastity is punished for all eternity by trying desperately, though to no avail, to return to the sanctity of home with its associations of innocence and family values. Is it naive of me to say that I think this is something that girls are more worried about at 13, 14, and not 7 to 12? Maybe not that young, but I think... um I think if you know puberty and your period and stuff is coming, at least when I was younger, it was very much hand in hand with uh, you. If you have your period, that means you can get pregnant. So you better be careful. So I think it becomes more of a fear for a girl because so much of the responsibility of that is put on young women, you know? Not the guy. He, he's, it takes two to tango, but it's usually presented as you better be careful because this, this change in your body means you can now get pregnant. Quote, with this reading of the legend, we can see how a Bloody Mary ritual in which a girl bridges the transition from prepubescent girl to nubile nymph may be related to a story about the dangerous consequences of a girl's being picked up by a male driver with a hot rod. He also connects the taboos for girls in actually just discussing virginity, sex, and menstruation, specifically in the mid-century era, including like, you know, the 70s when we're talking about the studies of this legend. Uh, Quote, the taboo status of menstruation and the shame wrongfully associated with its presence means that even in the late 20th century, little girls are often kept in the dark about it, a metaphor which is apt in light of the darkness imposed as part of setting the stage for Bloody Mary rituals. Some parents and teachers, products of repressed American culture, are reluctant to discuss menstruation openly with little girls. It's scary, but something that every girl will encounter sooner or later. Perhaps much like looking into a mirror and seeing a woman you don't recognize uh, or facing death as we all must do one day. It's frightening, but it happens to all of us. 
Dundee's concluded with an optimistic view, quote, if there is validity in the feminist hypothesis that it is males who have defined menstruation as something unpleasant and disgusting, then the Bloody Mary ritual may function as a positive rite of passage for young premenstrual girls. Rather than being persuaded by their culture to feel shame and embarrassment about menstruation, the ritual might be construed as an attempt to celebrate the onset onset of menses. So you're basically just tackling that fear head on by giving it a name, giving it a face. Well, and then on the other side of it, nothing bad happened, did it? So Yeah. It's sort of fascinating. Uh, and it's a similar concept to what we see in other pop culture depictions of bloody women, like uh, Stephen King's Carrie. This is a character who emerged in the 1974 novel around the very time that much of this psychoanalytical interpretation of American folklore was really in the mainstream of academic study. So uh, most of us know Carrie White gets her period. She doesn't understand it because it's taboo. No one's explained what's happening to her. Yeah, and then all the girls throw tampons at her. She endures horrors inflicted upon her in a bathroom transforms swan-like to attend a dance with a boy and ends up a monster covered in blood inflicting inflicting violence to all those around her. Uh, Perhaps Carrie is um, Dundee's version of Bloody Mary in all but name. Quote, when in March of 1997, I specifically asked Stephen King about my interpretation of Carrie, Dundee's wrote, he would neither confirm nor deny it, saying only that he thought that he drew upon the alleged association between menstruating girls and poltergeist powers. And that's something we've discussed here on the pod. Yeah, check our Lindley Street poltergeist episode. Yeah, the Bridgeport poltergeist and the Enfield poltergeist. Uh, So many poltergeist stories are around pubescent and prepubescent girls. All of them. And so sometimes a boy, but almost always a girl. Right. So does it, you know, maybe it makes especially uh, apt sense that girls are experimenting with this unknown while they're sort of about to bridge into their own unknown with their changing bodies. Now, the Bloody Mary legend specifically has been depicted in pop culture very often, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly starting in like the late 1990s. There's not a ton of portrayals before then, uh, aside from, you know, in these folklore compendiums and things like that. Well, that's because you needed film writers who had grown up doing it, right? Exactly. In the episode Sezigi, in the X-Files' third series, Mulder and Scully investigate the murders of high school students in a small town where everyone's acting strangely. And it includes a scene in which two teenagers are shown chanting Bloody Mary in the bathroom. And there's also other occultish occurrences like Ouija boards and coffins on fire and all that. We got Charmed doing Bloody Mary. Uh, Of course, Supernatural covered the legend in their episode, which portrayed a ghost attacking those who were looking into a mirror, chanting the name. Um, Had to do something with like her killing herself in front of a mirror in real life. 2008's Halloween Horror Nights event at Universal Studios included a new variation on the legend in which a character named Mary Agana was a doctor who studied fear by exposing her patients to fear. Uh, And she became more and more twisted until she herself became the ghost Bloody Mary. And, um, you know, I guess attacked everyone at Halloween Horror Nights. Worth the price of admission. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. 
Most famously on screen, though maybe not that famous, the third installment in the Urban Legend horror franchise, <laughs> 2005's Urban Legends Bloody Mary. Follows great title, original <laughs> title. Well, you know. Follows three high school students who inadvertently summon the ghost of a dead high school girl while doing the Bloody Mary ritual. The ghost then starts coming after her old classmates' children one by one. One by one. <laughs> This direct-to-video flick is probably most notable at this point for being the first starring role for Kate Mara and featuring future Oscar nominee Rooney Mara in an extra role. But otherwise, it's, um, you know, it's like a 40 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like very middling. Kate Mara, she gets, she gets pushed off a great train platform. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, so yeah, so at the end of the day, where did the legend of Bloody Mary come from? Was Bloody Mary originally just a, a reference to a killer English queen? Was it a spin on the classic Halloween divination marriage ritual? Or maybe, as some might posit, it was a, a big psychological cycle, one big story inherent to young women growing up. We are all the girl looking in the mirror, and we are all the changed Bloody Mary looking back at ourselves. Uh, sometimes I think all of us uh, over time have looked into a mirror and going, oh, God, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> certainly during lockdown, I did that a lot. Oh, I certainly <laughs> in, during my five years into my 30s now, I, I do it quite often. Yes. Or maybe little girls just like scaring themselves or are trying to deal with their fear of the unknown in any way that gives them control, even if it's control over scaring the shit out of themselves. Well, and here's the other thing. Isn't this... I know it takes different forms, and I know sometimes a group of girls is going into a bathroom together and giggling because they're so scared together. Mm -hmm. But aren't you sometimes kind of encouraging and or making your friends go into the bathroom alone and, and doing it? Yes, but it's usually part of a group. So you might, there, there might be girls giggling outside of the door, right? Yes. But you're not usually just going to go into the bathroom and give it a shot solo with no prompting. No, but I, it's kind of a... It's kind of a haze or a self-haze, right? It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a rite of passage where the people who have already done it tell you, you know, oh, it's so scary. And, 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 and But isn't that also like becoming an adult and, you know, losing your virginity and stuff? It feels scary. It feels strange uh, looking at it from the other side, uh, the side of being a child. Um, but that, you know, you get to the other side and go, hey, it wasn't so bad. I think it's a really interesting interpretation, but a, a lot of, t a, about halfway through any Freudian psychosexual mm -hmm. explanation of something, I just think like, yeah, but like consciously also kids might just think like, oh, it sounds bloody Mary. She, she sounds scary. She's covered in blood. Well, I think that's a lot of it. I think much of what might be happening is subconscious. I don't, like when I was experimenting with like urban legends and stuff and even incorporating these stories into my own first forays into horror writing as a kid i wasn't doing it because i'm like i need to deal with my fear of menstruation it was more like oh this is scary let's let's write something scary about it um but maybe that's why any of us engage with urban legends is telling each other stories um ha finding things to relate uh, to each other with and sometimes that's the act of performing some sort of ritual yeah but it, it, it 
there's almost an element of seven minutes in heaven to it. Yeah. When you're doing the version where one girl has to go in the bathroom and summon Bloody Mary and everybody else giggles outside while she's all uh, uh, scared by herself in there for a couple minutes. But again, you're you're also relating it to a very sort of... Horny. Young sexuality sort of experience, yep. you know? You go into this dark room and you come out a different person. Whether that's after having made out with, you know, Billy Jackson. Tommy Tomasino. Yes, or um, it's having seen a, a scary face in a mirror. You survived. You made it. And uh, you came out on the other side. And, you know, there's no... There's no surprise that uh, urban legends are such a, a young person's game uh, <laughs> in terms of spreading them and discussing them and when it comes to ritual, participating in those rituals. No, you and I have other things to be afraid of, like house foreclosure. <laughs> <laughs> Mortgages. <laughs> but that's kind of it, is that the, the, re the real fears, the realities of adult life are scary enough. You don't need to spook yourself out with a face in the mirror because, again, you got your real face in the mirror aging every day. You're trying serums, making the wrinkles go away. You know, you see yourself aging in the mirror. Uh, you don't have to worry about seeing something else. But kids don't really understand that. You know, every kid thinks that they're invincible and life is forever. And if you're starting to deal with the fact that you're getting older, then you're starting to deal with the fact that you're going to die someday. And maybe that's why this is all just one big cycle. It's scaring yourself because the reality is even more frightening. And on that cheery note, back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal. It's a Halloween edition of Me and My Boo. Condé Nast Traveler released their list of the 32 most haunted places in America, and it's caused a lot of debate in the paranormal community. Well, sure. Lists like this are only made to, you know, when they do best pizzas in Connecticut or, mm -hmm. or best pizzas in New York, or God forbid, best pizzas in the tri-state. <laughs> They're only looking for death threats. Well, engagement, certainly. We've been doing a lot of ghost story presentations for the Halloween season, and you can check out our presentations page at ain'titscary.com if you'd like to hop into one, either in person or virtually before the 31st. And at multiple of these presentations so far, we've had attendees ask for our opinions on this list, especially the selections for Connecticut. Mm -hmm. But first, let's discuss some of the other selections and see if any have been previous topics on the podcast. Maybe we can make a little road trip out of it. Ooh. Now, it's not specified what 
Condé Nast's criteria was for create for calling a place one of the most haunted in America, and why certain ones made the list and others didn't. But just that the listings were all chosen by their editors. But there are definitely some heavy hitters on the board. If you want, if you're getting mad at this list, I just want you to keep in mind that technically all places are equally haunted. <laughs> because you don't believe any of them are haunted, Sean, you jerk. Or because people have died everywhere and we're, we're, we're just crawling with ghosts everywhere you go. Well, it's very hopeful of you, Sean. But I think there's an even ghost distribution either way. <laughs> Selections that we've discussed on the show before include Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia from our Haunted Cemeteries series, the Crescent Hotel and Spa in Eureka Springs, Arkansas from our Haunted American Hotels episode, the Gettysburg Battlefield, of course, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania from the Gettysburg Ghosts episode, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, Massachusetts, the setting for the infamous murders we covered in our Lizzie Borden series, the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, inspiration for The Shining and also featured on our Haunted American Hotels app, and the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California from our episode of the same name. There you go. So if you're an Ain't It Scary listener, you know, I mean, basically skip the Condé Nast because <laughs> uh, you, you already know these places. Also on the list is Emily's Bridge, a.k.a. the Gold Brook Covered Bridge in Stowe, Vermont, which we haven't covered yet on the podcast, but is a prominent part of our New England Ghost Stories presentation. Uh, and a couple other locations I've personally been to that are from the list are the infamously spooky Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the famously literary House of the Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts, inspiration for Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel. Which we haven't covered, but have visited. Mm-hmm. Now, Connecticut has two inclusions, which is a pretty decent showing considering the list I don't think can possibly have covered all of the states. Um, we have the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut, and the Sheffield Island Lighthouse in Norwalk, Connecticut. Now, surprisingly, considering my English teacher father, I've never actually been to the Mark Twain House, but you have, Sean, right? Yeah, the ghost is hilarious. <laughs> well, was there any creepy vibes? There was no creepy vibes, but I was there in broad daylight when it was open and took a tour mm -hmm. through. So guided tours. It, guided tours in broad daylight are one of the less spooky settings. Mm. So, you know, I re really felt like I could soak up the history of the place. <laughs> um, but also I was a, I was a, a, chi a child. Mm. So I don't know that, uh, I don't know that I was on the lookout for spooks and scares. Mm. Well, there's also the Sheffield Island Lighthouse, which I haven't personally been to either, but is one of the uh, several purportedly haunted lighthouses in Connecticut. Another is the Penfield Reef Lighthouse off the shore of my hometown in Fairfield. Um, but according to Condé Nast, quote, In 1972, the lighthouse's original keeper died suddenly while watching passing ships with a spyglass. His death was never fully explained. Then, in 1991, an archaeologist working on historic site preservation reported several mysterious happenings, including mystical music coming from the shores, distant cries for help, and the sound of a foghorn, despite there being no foghorn on the island. Many believe the sounds were the work of ghosts. Many believe the sounds were the work of the ghost of Captain Robert Sheffield, who originally purchased the island in the early 1800s and apparently had a knack for weird musical instruments. Well, this is definitely worth a visit. Um, 
But if the if the first sightings were in like the early '90s, should this be on a list with Gettysburg? Yeah, it's kind of surprising. Uh, to me, the Connecticut inclusions are kind of surprising. Now, we are going to do a Haunted Lighthouses episode in the future for sure. We'll learn more about Sheffield then. But um, are you surprised, considering all that we know now of the hauntings in Connecticut? Yeah, you, you, well, you would expect to see a Dudley Town or a Fairfield Hills Asylum or uh, a Remington Arms plant. Or Union Cemetery in Easton, which we did the whole Union Cemetery episode about. Um, yeah, I, I'm honestly pretty shocked at these inclusions. Maybe they don't want to recommend people visit the Remington Arms plant because it's like a pile of rust and asbestos and lead. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're kind of pitching this as a travelogue sort of thing, and this is a travel publication, then yeah, you might not want to mention Remington Arms. You might not want to mention Dudley Town because that's contentiously guarded by the residents around there. Um, but still surprising that you're not mentioning Union Cemetery. You don't have to go there at night. Again, you might get arrested if you try to uh, sneak in there at nighttime. Maybe they're worried that people will do that. But again, if that's the case, you're not really creating a definitive list of the most haunted places. But the most haunted places you can legally visit. Sure, but even so, Fairfield Hills Asylum is a great destination. There's a nice brewery. But maybe people, maybe they're worried people will try to break into the, the boarded up buildings, you know. Not everyone is content with just sitting at a brewery and looking at the spooky buildings. That's a good point. There's nothing to break into in Gettysburg. So so you'd probably swap these out for uh, Fairfield Hills, Remington Arms, any other options? I think Remington and Dudleytown would, would you, you, they're just the most obvious too. I'm not saying they're the ones I'm sticking with, but, but top of my head. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely explore some more of these locations on the show. There's uh, some on the list that are notoriously super haunted, like the Whaley House in, I think, San Diego, California. Um, but there were also ones that weren't on the list that I was shocked about, like the Myrtle's Plantation. So, Is the Mystery House, the Winchester Mystery House on there? Yes. Yeah, I mentioned that. That's one of the ones that we've covered before. Um so, you know, at least there's that. I'd love to visit that someday. But, yeah, we'll definitely be covering more from this list as the years go on. The Winchester? Pup? That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. Don't forget to share your favorite clips from the last 50 or so episodes with us yes, at any of these places. <laughs> and please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining Joining us on Patreon, uh, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakudis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, and Ira. We love you all very much, our spooky family. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs>
one of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.